So, we're going to continue our exploration of the Megillah together. We're on Dafyud Beis Amad Beis, page 12, side 2. The last thing we learned about was the very bad advice that Haman had given Achashverosh and how the people were laughing at it. But it actually kind of works like that for us in the long run. At any rate, we are now going to analyze Achashverosh's post-mortem. What does he do afterwards? And there's going to be historical comparisons here between, from our perspective, the greatest king of all time, the king who lives on for posterity or eternity, David Melech Yisrael Chai and Achashverosh, who is a very poor example of a monarch. And the Gemara is going to juxtapose the two, seeing them as representative of two polar extremes. And we are also going to delve into the history of Mordechai. How did Mordechai become so great? Where did he come from? And how did this contribute to his development? So let us start with the analysis now of the second chapter of the Megillah. We've, what we happened in the Gemara before, we concluded the Gemara's analysis of Pedic Aleph. And the Gemara picks it up on verse 3. On, on the, the third Pasuk, it says that Achashverosh kind of sobered up. And he was very, very unhappy and very lonely. So now he's got to find a new queen. So the Megillah says, Vayafged hamelech pikidim, the king sent out orders to his whole kingdom. What was the order? The order was, we're going to have a great big beauty contest. And whoever is the most bewitching and beautiful and all kinds of words which I probably shouldn't use on uh, learning Gemara, Rachashverosh, that's going to be the one who's chosen to be the queen. Okay. So the Gemara begins its analysis of, of this story. Not so much the words. We're not emphasizing in the next piece of Gemara we're going to talk about the words. Exact verbiage that the scripture uses. This is more of a general analysis on the idea. Although we will focus and zero in onto the words a little bit as well. So the Gemara says, With regard to this idea, Omar Rav, Rav said, What is the meaning of what's written? Orum the clever, sly, or wise one, does with intelligence. Uchsil, and the fool, yifrois ivelas. He kind of publicizes or makes known his stupidity, his foolishness. So what's the meaning of that verse? What does it mean when it says that the clever one acts wisely and the fool broadcasts his foolishness? Kind of a no-brainer, actually. Obviously, a wise person can act wise, and a fool is going to act like a fool. So you'll know who's a fool, and you know who's wise. So the Gemara says, what does it mean? Kol arum yase bedas. 
the clever and sly one who behaves, so to speak, bidas, bidas means with intelligence, with an intuitive, wise, and an intelligent attitude and approach. Is that David? This is David. Why is that David HaMelech? Dechsev, it says about David HaMelech, his servant said to him, and this is a rather odd story for us to wrap our heads around, but David HaMelech was old and needed somebody to take care of him, and the servants of David thought that would be a good idea, Yavakshu, Ladoni HaMelech, Night of Sulam, that they should find a beautiful young maiden, or it doesn't say beautiful, it says just a young maiden, and she would be with the king, and she would take care of the king. So, what did the king want? He wanted to find, or what, what did they want for him? To find a young lady to take care of him. The, the, the Navi tells us the devil was never intimate, he never consummated, it wasn't really like a marriage, but nonetheless, that was essentially what was going on over here. And the result of this was, anybody who had a daughter brought that daughter. Everybody, so to speak, tried to sign up for this job. Uchsil Yifres Ivelas, the fool broadcasts his foolishness, his stupidity. It says, that the king had to send forth an order. Anybody who had a daughter at this time, Itamra Minei hid her from him. Esther was not the only one in hiding. And they had the secret police, the Gestapo, whatever you want to call them, who was seeking out all the young ladies who were in hiding so they could bring them to Ahasuerus. And then there was a whole process as in the Megillah until Ahasuerus would meet and then decide if this was the young lady for him or if not, and so on and so forth. It's a very strange Gemara. Very strange Gemara. It's a strange Gemara because, like, what, what was wrong here? What was the problem? What was the issue? And the Megillah finds it somehow meaningful that the king had to send forth an order. When kings send forth orders, Achashverosh was lonely, so he wanted a companion. And that was what Achashverosh was interested in. He was not to seek intelligent conversation. He was not looking for somebody to give him advice. He was looking for what Achashverosh was interested in. So, why does the Gemara even open this discussion? And, and really, how does that Pasuk in the 13th chapter of Mishlei, how does it address us? How does it explain things? It says, ah, the fool, the fool like kind of broadcasts his foolishness, but the wise person acts, or the sly person acts with wisdom. Incidentally, the word arum, usually it's sometimes translated as naked, but the first time arum shows up in the Torah is with regard to the snake, the nachash. And that's not a good thing, but he was very clever and very sly, and he had his ideas, and he was very successful. So that's where the word Orem comes. For example, it says, the Orma, with regard to Yaakov Avinu's children, when Dina was abducted and raped and then held hostage, so it says that they behaved the Orma, and Rashi tells us the basing himself on uncle, it says Bechuchmasa, with cleverness, with wisdom. Very, very carefully and methodically thought out, kind of like a chess game, where you don't look at what you're seeing, but rather, what will this bring to? And as such, plan your moves carefully. Okay, so there isn't much in the Mepharshim about this, but this is what I'm going to suggest. I think this is the Pshat. The, the idea of a Yafkid HaMelech Pekidim, the king having to give forth an order, so an order seems 
to say that there was duress, that, that there was, Ahasuerus was forcing his way. People did not volunteer for this. Like this is what the Sifzichom says, that Pekidim sounds like noigsim, umimunim bechazaka. It means the, the girls were basically held under duress, they were taken under duress. People did not volunteer for this. So it seems that people had to be forced to relinquish their daughters in, in the ancient world. And in that part of the world, many people still, father's got to sign off. If there's no father to sign off, then you can't have the girls. So the father would be forced to sign off. And they were hiding their daughters because they didn't want their daughters to end up in this position. So you have to ask yourself the simple question. If there was an opportunity for these people's daughters to become know, the mightiest woman in the world, the most... Uh, who wouldn't want such a position? Who wouldn't want their daughters to be in the running to be the queen if, if the girl was beautiful like, and she had a chance? Like, who wouldn't want this? The assumption that we usually make is that everybody came running with the exception of Esther who went hiding. But everybody else came running. Everybody else was really excited about this. The last time I checked when there's these beauty contests for Miss Canada or Miss America, I don't think anybody goes through under duress. I think people are banging the doors down. They wish they could get in there. They wish they could get into Hollywood. They wish they could be models. They wish they wish they could do this. And that's, that's like not becoming uh, the queen. So why would it have to say, I think the issue, the underlying issue here is that it seems that the story with Ahasuerosh unfolds under duress. The girls are forced to come to audition for the position. And that is counterintuitive. So the Gemara then feels that there is a message being conveyed to us from the fact that we talk about Pekidim, Neisim, Bechazaka, that was forcing people, instead of people actually volunteering or doing anything they could to be able to try to qualify. So in order to understand this, the Gemara goes back into history and says, was there ever a king who looked for a, a wife, a consort, a, a companion, Queen of sorts. Was there ever a king like this before in history? In other words, do we have a precedent for this? So maybe, maybe people didn't want to be queens. Maybe people didn't want to deal with a king. Maybe, maybe everybody was afraid. Maybe it was too big a position. Maybe the head that the crown lies on lies uneasy, as one famous English writer once wrote. So the Gemara says, well, we do have, we do have a precedent in the ancient world, and in that precedent, everybody signed up. Everybody was ready. Nobody, there was no duress whatsoever. So the Gemara says, in order to understand this then, we have to lean on the Pasuk and Mishle. Only the Pasuk and Mishle will clarify for us why at times, at one time, with regard to David HaMelech, everybody wanted the position. With Achashverosh, everybody didn't. You cannot say, well, it's because David HaMelech was a Yerushalmayim and a Tzadik because he revered heaven and he was a Eved Alikim, a person who worked on himself. And that's why everybody wanted because the women who Ahasuerus was going after were not looking for those values. They were looking for Ahasuerus values. That was the society they lived in. So the same way David HaMelech was able to attract an enormous amount of volunteers for what was the values of the Jewish people in the ancient kingdom of Israel, seemingly Ahasuerus should have had the same success, but he didn't. Ask the question, why not? So the Gemara says that there is insight here. What's the insight? The insight is that the fool publicizes foolishness, but the clever one acts with, with, with discernment in a very, very uh, carefully choreographed way. 
Who ends up getting chosen to be with David Amalek, by the way? Who ends up getting chosen? There's a young, young woman whose name was, 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 was uh, Avigash, and she's a very, very beautiful woman. Who ends up getting chosen with Akashverosh? Esther, and she's supposedly also very young and beautiful. Okay, so if it, both end up with the same result, how come one got the same result under duress, and one got the same result without any pressure? What was the difference? So obviously there, there has to be a difference between what Dovranach was looking for and what Achashverosh was looking for. And essentially, Achashverosh made it very clear that he wanted a beautiful woman. And he made, he made it so clear, it was obvious what he wanted to do, what he was looking for. And because of that, his father said, give my daughter and Achashverosh is gonna try her out and do whatever he does, and then what? And then she's stuck in a hero for the rest of her life? Because nobody was going out of that palace. You went in, you didn't come out. Either you stayed there as the queen, or you were stuck there. So every father said, I have to look after my daughter's welfare. I mean, like, she's, she's got like a, a one in 10,000 chance. So she's gonna be abused, she's gonna be taken, for, and then probably nothing will happen with it? I don't want that. So they hid their children. They hid their daughters. It was never plugged in. So nobody had heard anything. <laughs> so, so when it came to David and he never mentioned beauty. Of course, they were going to find the young lady for the queen. So she had, as they say, alamilas. She had the all virtues. With regard to, with regard to the virtues of womanhood, we have that famous hymn or poem, which was originally written by Avraham Avinu. This was Avraham Avinu's eulogy for Sarai Menu. And this was lovingly preserved from generation to generation until 15 generations later, Shlomo HaMelech commits it into its present iteration, the way we have Eishas Chayel today. And, and Eishas Chayel concludes with the words, Sheker Achein, Vehevel Hayoifi. Beauty is meaningless, charisma is nothing. It's nothing, meaningless. It's the values. It's a person has reverence for Hashem. A person has virtues, real virtues in life that are meaningful. So on the simple level, the Pasuk seems to say that the virtues of skin deep beauty are meaningless. It's nothing. It's worthless. The only thing that means anything is the virtues, the virtues of character. That's what's the only thing that's important. However, many, many rabbis have commented and explained that's not exactly what it means. It means if it's only beauty, then it's sheker. What is, why is it a lie? Because it, it stands on its own, it has no value, it has no meaning on its own. If that's all it is, it's, it's here today, eventually it dissipates. It's not something that lasts forever. So therefore that's, that should not be the sole decisor or arbiter as to whether one appreciates or doesn't appreciate this Eishas Chayel. However, when you have Sheker Achem Vehevel HaYefi on its own, however, Isha Yiris Hashem, if a woman has the right values in life, the right virtues, she has the character and personality to match the beauty. In other words, the skin deep, the outer beauty is in corollary with the inner beauty. So that's a different story. So that's Hitis Halal. That's truly praiseworthy. And there is an element of beauty to the feminine. It's not, it's, not, it's not a masculine thing, it's more of a feminine thing. But the question is, is that all there is? 
So Achashverosh was very clear. It's all he was interested in. It's all he wanted. It's all he wanted. So people said, that's all he wants? My daughter's not a piece of meat, not a number. I'm going to give my daughter to this guy. That's all he cares about? And what if he doesn't like it? What if he, doesn't, he decides not to choose her? Well, now she's finished. She can't go anywhere. She doesn't, she doesn't leave. And she was abused and it's over. Whereas with David Amalek, he never asked, he never mentioned beauty. He talked about somebody who could be there to, to take care of him, somebody to be there to do the job. In the end, of course, that's what his servants looked for as well. He found this supremely pious young lady and she was also beautiful. So the, re- the end result is the same. The end result for David Amalek and the end result for Achashver is exactly the same. What's the difference though? The difference is how you get there. So the fool is crude. And in his crudeness, he'll get there in the end, but everybody knows how crude he is because of the way he expressed himself. How did they express himself? Get me a beautiful girl. Okay, get me a beautiful girl. So they knew that's all it was about. And because he wore his crude nature on his sleeve, because he spoke so crudely and behaved crudely, so they knew what every, everybody knew exactly what this was about. So, yeah, I mean, he ends up with, with the result, but under duress. Whereas David Melch never says that. And it's understood, it's implicit. And in the end, the same result comes about. But here, people are lining up for this job. They, everybody's trying out rather than hiding or avoiding it. So that's, I think, how the Gemara is explaining to us the meaning of a Yafkid HaMelech Pekidim. Because the Gemara uses the word, the Megillah says twice. Vayafkid HaMelech Pekidim. Two times. It's in a verb form and a noun form. So there's very much an emphasis on the duress over here. And this gives you insight into how Achashverosh got things done. Now, you'll, you'll remember that a while back, classes earlier, we brought a machlekes, there was a dispute between Rav and Shmuel, whether Achashverosh was an absolute fool or whether he was totally brilliant. We have this machlekes, Rav and Shmuel, one says, Melech Pik Achaya, one says, Melech Sheit Achaya. One says he was brilliant, he was a very, very wise, very intuitive, the other said he was a total idiot. You know, and you always ask yourself the question, how could you be one or the other? It's, it's not like they're neighbors. Like imbecile and, 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 and very, very wise, they're not, they're not side by side. But the answer really is very simple. The answer is you could have somebody who's extremely crude, extremely gruff, but they could be clever as a fox or crazy as a fox, as they say. So this was Akashverish. He was crazy as a fox. He, he was nobody's fool, and in the end, he succeeded in all, doing all the things he wanted, but his methods were very crude and very coarse. And that's the difference between what we say is the person who's crude and crass and coarse, you'll know it that they're crude and crass and coarse. And the person who's wide and intuitive, the, the result can be the end. In other words, here's the question at hand. People say it's all about results. It's all about results. not. The results are there. So it's true. It's about results. But there's a fool's way of getting results. And there's a clever and elegant way of getting results. It's, it's even if, when the world is a difficult place, you don't have to be a fool and you don't have to broadcast your stupidity in order to get results. There is a clever way to do it too. There's a dignified way to do it. David Amelch chose the dignified way. He was successful. Achashverosh chose the crude way. He was also successful. Things worked out in the end. And that's, that's where we have a juxtaposition. We have this juxtaposition of Orum Yase Bedas Uchsil like, what's the connection? Why do we put these two? Why, why do you put these two bedfellows, the fool and the and, and the clever fellow? Well, we put them together because the fool and the clever one, they're not so different in in the end result. But everybody knows one is a fool, and has no respect for him, 
and everybody knows the other one is highly intuitive and highly intelligent and has enormous respect for the end result that is engendered and achieved. And this is very timely in many ways. I'll leave it for everybody to figure out on their own how they might apply this in today's day and age. But certainly we can apply it to ourselves that we live in a crude world where people behave in crude fashion and use crude methodologies to get their ways. That doesn't mean we have to be crude. There's, there's an intelligent way, there's an intuitive way, there's a menschlich way, there's a dignified way to do things. And if we are arum, if we are clever enough and wise enough, we can do so bedas, with dignity, with, with, with quiet respect and intelligence, and the same results can be, res, results can be achieved. Okay, that concludes this little piece of analysis. As I said, the emphasis here is on the word pikid. The Gemara now continues. Moving from Ahasuerosh and the historical comparison with David HaMelech, which can be, as I said, understood in many ways, we now move on to speak about Mordechai. When we're now going to get introduced, that's when you put the dramatic music in, here is now the introduction of verse 5 of the, of the second chapter of the Megillah, Ish Yehudi Hoya B'Shushan Habira. We are introduced to Mordechai for the first time in the beginning of the second chapter, and he's called a man who is a Yehudi, Yehudi man. And he lived in Shushan, etc., the Gaimer. And it finishes off with Ish Yemini. So this verse opens by saying, Ish Yehudi Hoya B'Shushan Habira, there was a Yehudi in Shushan Habira, and it concludes that he was Ish Yemini. So in the middle there's a, a you know, it says, it's Mordechai ben Yor ben Kish, ben Shimi ben Kish, who is Ish Yemini. And the Gemara is going to analyze that actually. Why do we talk about ben Yor, ben Shimi, ben Kish? Why, why do we go through these generations, which by the way span a few hundred years? Why do we go through those generations? But before we get into why we go through those generations, the first thing that the Gemara is zeroing in on is that this Pasuk begins with the words Ish and it ends with the word Ish, a man of. But the first time it says, a man who is a Yehudi, and the second time it says, a man who is a Yemini. Now presumably, Yehudi is connected to the tribe which is known as Yehuda. And Yemini would be connected to the tribe which is known as Binyamin, presumably. So the question then is, why is, why is the Megillah mentioning this? Like, I mean, really, why is it important to have so many names for this person? Is he so hard to identify? Why can't the Megillah just say, That's all. That's good enough. But the Megillah is very precise. And finishing off with Ishimini. Besides the fact that the two seem to be somewhat at loggerheads with one another. So the Gemara begins its careful analysis of this business. What is the meaning of Ish Yemini, Ish Yehudi, and so on and so forth? Actually, before I go further, I'm going to, ask, I'm going to apologize. I'd like to go back and read the Rashi, because Rashi does give us a little bit of clarity here. I want to go back and read the Rashi about Naira. So it says like this. Rashi says, David David asked for one young lady. Kol Adam. Everybody said he wants one young lady. Maybe my daughter could be the young lady. He didn't gather all the ladies together. Maybe this is good. But he was a fool. He said, first gather everybody. Everybody knows Everybody knows he's not going to. He's only not going to be seven hundred queens. He knew that it's going to be one queen. That was not the question. But he gathered them all together. And 
even though shalikach ela achas veskula nivel. He knew that he's going to be intimate with all of them. Manda hava lebrata metamra. Anybody had a daughter, hit her away. Is he crazy? I'm playing Russian roulette with my daughter. Achashverosh has his way, and then finish. He's stuck in a harem. I'm not doing that. Okay. Anyway, this, now let's go back to the Gemara over here. So again, the emphasis here, the question is, Ishihudi, Ishimini, why do we begin with Moro Ishihudi, Ishimini? If it's for identification purposes, you already said you want to use father's name, fine, you say Mordechai ben Yoyer. Okay, that's common, we do sometimes use the father's name. You, sometimes you even need to use the grandfather's name. You know when that happens? When you have two, two fellows who have the same name, and their fathers have the same name, which is fairly common, let's say, in Lubavitch, because there could be people who are named after the Rabbeim, which is common names in Lubavitch, and then they could be a member of, like, somebody has family. So, so for example, um, my, I have, my eldest son is Zev. His name is Zev, because that was Fegi Zevi, and my name is Menachem Mendel. So he'll be, he's called it the Torah Zev ben Menachem Mendel. My nephew from Halifax, his name is also Zev ben Menachem Mendel, because our brother-in-law's name is Menachem Mendel. It's, as I said, a common name in Lubavitch. But they're all named after that same grandfather, their mother's grandfather. And then I have a younger brother-in-law, and, and uh, from Brooklyn, and he's not bar mitzvah yet, but when he gets called to the Torah, it's also going to be Zev ben Menachem Mendels. So what happens at a family gathering where you have all these Zev ben Menachem Mendels, how do you call them up to the Torah? So the good news is, none of the Zedis have the same name. So how would you call up? So my nephew would get called up, Ya'amoyed, Habacher Zev ben Menachem Mendel ben Yeshaya Zusha. But that's my, my brother-in-law's father's name, my, my father's name. So you know which Zev ben Menachem Mendel it is. And this is not an uncommon thing. So sometimes in Yichas, we go back three generations. Maybe there were many Mordechai ben Yoyers. I don't know, Yoyers is a nice name, Mordechai is a nice name. It's not, it's not impossible to imagine that there couldn't have been another Mordechai who was living in Shushan at the time. Maybe there was, maybe there was. I don't know, it could be. And maybe they were both the ben Yoyer, it could also be. Okay, so you want to say ben Yoyer, go back even one more generation, ben Shimi. Then we start going to Ben Kish. That's getting a little bit excessive. Right? Like four generations. Like really, how many Mordechais named Ben Yoyer, ben, ben, ben Shimi, were living in, 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 in Shushan? But the bigger question here is on the Ishuhudi and the Ishimini. What's up with the Ishuhudi, Ishimini? What does he have these names for? What do these names mean? What is the purpose of introducing them this way? Remember, we're dealing here with Scripture. Every single word of the Scripture is measured. Every word is exact. Every word conveys a message to us. And the Gemara is asking, What? What does this mean? Perhaps even if it's not a question the level of pshat, it's certainly a question the level of drush, of expounding on this and understanding it in a more profound way. So what's going on here? Why? Why, why, is, why is we having redundancy? Or superfluous name. It's not really not about redundancy, but it's about there's a superfluous thing here. Words, titles, unnecessary. And both set up with ish. So the Gemara says, my karma. What, what are we saying here? And the Gemara says, the Gemara begins now its analysis. If, the Gemara says, if this was about Yichas, which is to trace the lineage of Mordechai. So if you wanted to trace the lineage of Mordechai, so we should have gone back to Binyamin, who is the son of Yaakov, the younger son of Yaakov. That everybody will know. You don't have to say Ben Yaman, Ben Yaakov, Ben Yisrael, Ben Avram. But if you wanted to list his lineage back to a famous person, so then, then you need to go back to the famous person. Uh, Shimi is not so well-known. Yoyer is certainly not so well. Kish, most people don't know who Kish is. If their names had not ended up in the Megillah, the vast majority of people would not know of Yoyer, of Kish, or of Yemini, of, um, of, 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 um, 
of Kish. But everybody knows Binyamin. Everybody knows Mardukai, he's a very famous figure. Everybody knows Binyamin. And that's really how it is. Like historically, if you want to trace lineage back, all you need to do is trace yourself back to a famous person. If you come from a famous person, so then you'll automatically build like a bridge. You'll know you get to there, and then you go to the next famous person. Right? So like when I was a kid, we always knew that we are descended from the Shagasarye. Shagasarye was this very, very famous rabbi who lives in Alsace-Lorraine, Lithuania. Very famous Talmudist. There's a lot of amazing stories about him. So, so how do we know this story? Because apparently when my Zaidi's eldest sister got engaged, they were Litvish, my great-grandparents, they didn't talk about Yichas. The Hasidic world talk about Yichas all day, but Litvish didn't talk about it. So didn't talk about it. And uh, so my Zaidi's oldest sister gets engaged. And the Mechutin, the parents of this fellow, of this guy, says, you know, we're descended from the Shagas Aryeh. Like, we're special. So my Zayda told me he was a bacher, he was a young man. His father said, no, so are we. <laughs> so he said to his father, how come you never told me? He said, we don't talk about these things. We don't talk about these things. You know, they'll, they'll become arrogant. It's not, the yichas, they say, is like a zero. It's only good if you put something in front of it, to put a number in front. Otherwise, in the, the, the litvish yidin used to say, yichas atzmei dafmen haben. You have to have your own yichas. Right? So, because very curious, my father likes tracing the stuff, so we're still missing a generation or two. We don't know a generation or two, but we have more or less the thing figured out. But so, it's, it's pretty accurate. Now we come from the Shagas Aryeh. What does it do for you? Ah, well, if you know you come from the Shagas Aryeh, then it's not so hard to find out that the Shagas Aryeh was himself a great grandson of Masa's Binyamin, Binyamin Solnik, this famous Polish rabbi. Mm, Binyamin Solnik. So you go to Binyamin Solnik, and in the beginning of his book, Shailos Hachubas Masas Binyamin, he writes that he is Nin Venechad to Don Yitzchak Abar Beno. Oh, so Spanish Jews or Jews in Portugal ended up getting expelled. Somehow they ended up in Poland or in Eastern Europe. So now we know that we go back to Abar Benel. Oh, Abar Benel? Abar Benel writes about his family that they are from Malchus Beis David. They're from the house of David HaMelech who escaped the purges that were going on in Yerushalayim. And they got onto a a, a, a boat to run for their lives and a whole chunk of the Davidic family ran away there. Now, this yichas is probably shared by 80% of Ashkenazim because, you know, you have the same mix of blood and the same grandparents. You know, I, I get to know about it. Okay, that's a, and they say, they say that in a buck, we'll get your coffee. Well, not anymore. Now, buck 25. <laughs> so, so, you have to go back to a famous person. So, if this was about yichas, if you, if you had to trace lineage back to a famous person, Binyamin, everybody knows. Which Binyamin? Binyamin. All the Aserah Sashvatim, everybody knows. Those names have been propagated. Those names have continued. It's Binyamin. Mordechai. Mordechai's name will never disappear from the Jewish people. There's always been Mordechai's around. Ever since the Megillah. Kishes, I never met a Kish. Shimi, I met Shimans. I never met a Shimi. And I never met even a Yoyer. A Yoyer is rare. Okay, Yoyer, there, are, there are Yoyers. A little, a little bit. Uh, but they're not. So it's a Yoyer. Oh, Yoyer. Ha! Of course, Yoyer. Who's Yoyer? What do you mean? You don't know who Yor is? No, who, I don't know. Who, who's Yor? He's Mordechai ben Yor. Ah, Mordechai's father. I'm sure he was a very special Jew. He raised a son like Mordechai. Must have been a, a super Jew. But he's not like famous. So the Gemara says, I don't understand this. If you, start, if you want to say his name is Mordechai ben Yor because they didn't have last names in those days, they called by the father's name, fine. So Mordechai ben Yor. But you start going generationally, Mordechai ben Yor, ben Shimi, ben Kish. What's the natural thing to do now? What do you say next? Ben Binyamin! Oh, now we know who he is. He's from the tribe of Binyamin, goes right back to Binyamin. Which happens to be the case. But instead we say Ish Yemini. Ish Yemini. 
So the Gemara says, if, if you want, if Ish Yemini was to tell you that he was from the tribe of Binyamin, why do you have to say Ish Yemini? What should you say? Just say Binyamin's name. It's, by the way, the same amount of letters. You wouldn't like beginning anything. Ish Yemini and Ben Binyamin is the same amount. It, wouldn't, it would make perfect sense. So if this was about telling you which tribe he's from, then the Megillah should simply have read Ish Yehudi, and then tell you who is the Ushmai, what's his name? Mardechai ben Yor, ben Shimi, ben Kish, ben Binyamin. Instead it finishes off, no, Ishumini. So we're asking ourselves the question, what is Ishumini? And the Gemara's supposition is, ah, we, we made me call him Yehudi, but we want you to know that he's from the tribe of Binyamin. Well, if you want him to know he's the tribe of Binyamin, it's not like there were many more generations. They have to go back, because Kish is the son of Binyamin. So just say, Ben Binyamin. Instead it says, Ishumini. So the Gemara says, I don't get this. Something does, it's, not, it's not adding up over here. Ella. Maishno. Hani. Tono. Kulon. Alshmoi. Nikru. So why is it? Maishno. Hani. What's with these, these parents that mention only these parents? So the Gemara says, I'll tell you why. Because Kulon, all these parents, Alshmoi. Nikru. He was kind of called by their name which means to say that their names happen to be fortuitously in sync with the personality of Mordechai. So the Megillah is not trying to give you the history, is not trying to give you the lineage. The Megillah is trying to describe the persona of Mordechai. And how do we describe the persona? By saying, Ben Yoyer, Ben Shimi, Ben Kish which happened to be the names of his father, grandfather, and great-grandfather. But more importantly here, the Gemara says, the point is not about lineage. The point is about giving you an understanding of who this man is. How so? So the Gemara now explains. Ben Yair, the son of Yair. And let me take a moment before I explain what this means to remind you that Bar Mitzvah, or... Bat mitzvah literally translates as the son of a mitzvah, the daughter of a mitzvah. What does that mean? You're the son or daughter of your parents. And the answer is that ben or bar in Aramaic, which means son of, or bat, or brate, can mean child of, or it can mean one who possesses certain qualities, just as children possess the DNA of their parents. And oftentimes, even latent potential that the parents had that was never developed can suddenly emerge and resonate in future generations. So just as this person is a master of this DNA or he has these abilities, there could be a person who develops qualities that are so powerful, so profound, that it actually becomes part of his DNA. I'll go out on a limb and tell you that there's something called epigenetics, like epidermis, right? Epi in, in, in Latin means surficial. So epigenetics means that there are surficial genetics that is to say, there are things which we would not necessarily have as part of our genome, part of our genetic makeup, but through continuous efforts made during the course of a lifetime, we actually modify our own genome to the point that you would pass those things on to children. And this is the most remarkable field of, of genetics in, t in the modern era, in today's day and age, after the DNA you know, was released with the whole big fanfare and people discovered the whole, what DNA means and what genetics means. But then the, the most the unusual field is how the DNA can actually shift and change. You know, people talk about uh, evolution. I guess this is a way to talk about things happening by accident or randomly and we don't know why they happen, which we of course reject entirely. But there is an evolution 
we don't believe that there's evolution from species to species. And of course, Darwin himself did say that unless they found the missing links, he would have to admit that his theory was wrong. The, those miss, missing links have never yet been found. We haven't found in between. In between, we have, we have the tadpole, we have the fish, we have the monkey, or the ape, we have the person. We don't have the in-between links. So by Darwin's yardstick, he would have said, I'm disproven. But of course, Darwin's football was picked up by others, and they don't care what he says because they moved forward on their own. Having said this, there is evidence. We actually have witnessed evolution in Drosophilus, which is different kinds of like, lettuce-like vegetation. They actually can document evolution of how lettuce changes, and they see the different species. But really where we could see evolution is in genetics. We can actually see the evolution of genetics where, where, where people, because of behavior, because of repeated behavior, because of behavior that becomes so much a part of who people are, that actually makes its way into the DNA. Which would mean that there's a preponderance in the next generation. Of course, Hashem does not take away freedom of choice. But just like there could be somebody who is predisposed to anger, or somebody who's predisposed to addiction, or somebody who's predisposed to abuse, or somebody who's predisposed to meekness, or other or laziness, or other bad qualities, you actually can pass on certain things to your children. If you work or slide continuously, it can become part of your DNA. And it's scientifically proven today that if you have something where there's generational abuse, like generational alcohol, abuse of alcohol, generational physical abuse, spousal abuse, that it, it, it's almost like the children are predisposed to it. It doesn't mean they have to do that. They can overcome bad qualities. They could be somebody who's predisposed to arrogance, or somebody who's predisposed to laziness, or somebody who's predisposed to anger. These are all bad qualities. And Hashem gave each of us our own peckle, so to speak, and we have to work on our own negative qualities. But just like we can understand that things like that are like the color of our eyes, and whether we're predisposed to obesity or, 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 or predisposed to, to uh, fatigue. There's a, a predisposition. Some people are born with more energy, some less, with, with different kind of metabolic makeups. People can actually be born with quality, spiritual qualities, which would mean that somebody is predisposed to be able to daven better, maybe, or somebody's predisposed to be able to study Torah better. Now, of course, you're going to say, ha, 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 how would you ever prove that? Of course... The person who seems predisposed was raised in that house. And because he was raised in that house, it could be something simply as having books in the house. One, one house, there's specific codes, there's holy books, one house, there aren't. So it's proven that if there's books in the house, there's a great likelihood of reading. And if this is the things your parents valued, naturally those things would go on to our children. Except for the little niggling, annoying fact that that's just not true. That there are children raised in the exact same house by the same exact parents that could be only a year or two or three apart, and they're worlds apart. And the parents try the same way. So say, ah, that's genetics. <laughs> so, so the same way, that's genetics. There's also a preponderance, a predisposition. Does it necessarily mean that the children will be that way? Of course not. If it's connected to Yiddishkeit, Torah, Mitzvahs, there's always a freedom of choice. Having said this, Mordechai achieved certain qualities that maybe in some way he actually got from his parents and from his father, from his grandfather. He, he inherited some of these things. But these, the names of his, an, his ancestors reflected who he was as a person to the point that it became his definition. And because he, he was defined as such, the progeny of Mordechai was probably also predisposed to this. Okay, by now you should be pretty curious. So what were these, what were these predispositions? The Gemara says that Nikra ben Yoyer, because... Ben Sheheir Eneim Shel Yisrael 
because he was a child or a master of illuminating the eyes of the Jewish people through his prayer. Now, I find this fascinating because it doesn't say that he illuminated the Jewish people through his Torah study, which is usually the way, that's the language you use. For Torah study, we usually say that, you know, Rabbi Meir was called Meir because he was Meir in Echachomim. He illuminated the eyes of those the wise people who he taught Torah to. When we talk about not knowing something and then learning something, it's like shedding light on something. Yet, the emphasis here is on davening. And, and perhaps Mordechai's leadership, Mordechai was not known maybe to be the profoundest Torah scholar. He didn't have the greatest insights necessarily. That's not who Mordechai was. Every, every Nasi, every leader has their methodology, their way of, of leading Am Yisrael. And Hashem gives each Nasi, each leader, what he needs for his generation. So the generation of Mordechai didn't need profound teachings. The generation of Mordechai needed Mesiras Nefesh. They needed, to be, they needed to be passionately devoted and committed to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to preserving their Yiddishkeit, to being tall and, and proud in a time when every Jew was threatened with murder. Everybody walked around with a target on, on their back. I mean, he's a very smart man, Mordechai. He's a very intuitive man. But he was best when it came to prayer. He inspired the Jewish people to pray. Yes, he did teach Torah. He gathered 22,000 school children and taught them Torah. But you don't need the great Rebbe to teach little school children. You could have got a good storyteller. You could have got somebody who was a wonderful teacher, a third grade teacher. The point, of course, was that Mordechai was conveying a message to them. He said, you children, you are the future of the Jewish people and you have such an important role. You, I, the leader, the Rebbe, I'm spending time with you. What is the message to the children? The message is how important we are. He inspired them, made the children realize how they, the future of the Jewish people, is in their hands. I recently heard a, a beautiful story. My father told me that there's a, there was an educator from London. His name is Cousins, Rabbi Cousins. And he was the headmaster of the Lubavitch schools in London for many years. So he told my father that there was a, a non-Lubavitch fellow, a chassid of some background, who decided that he wanted to go into education. I don't know if he would, had been studying for years or maybe he was even in business and he decided he wanted to go into education and he wanted to get a bracha from the Rebbe. So, so the story goes that, that in those days there was no dollars and it wasn't so easy to get an appointment. But when the Rebbe would lead the Fabrengen at the end of Yom Tif, he would afterwards, he would uh, lead the benching, the Birchat Amazon, and then afterwards he would make Havdalah and then the Rebbe would give a little bit of the wine from his cup which is called a Kos Bracha, a cup of blessing to anybody who wanted and he would remain standing sometimes till 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. Very common. Once it was even almost till 5. So this person goes by with Rabbi Cousins to get a little bit of wine. And as he goes by, Rabbi Cousins says to the Rebbe, Evil Arangen in Chinuch. He wants to go into education. As if to say that he sought advice or blessing. So the Rebbe and, and the crowd used to sing. We would sing, we, all the Bachram and Yigalai were there, we would, we would sing until the Rebbe left. The Rebbe wasn't there himself. There thousands of people standing around and watching. It was a, really a heavenly scene. So it was noisy. And oftentimes there was very little speaking usually. This was just like they were looked in your eyes, poured a little bit of a cup of wine. It was more like, you know, giving you the cup of blessing. And on occasion when the Rebbe had to speak, he had to like, almost like shout to be heard of the crowd. So the Rebbe like, like almost shouted in a loud voice to him, build self-esteem. This is what the words of this is almost 40 years ago. Like today, this would be almost like basic. Of course, that's what an educator should do. I'm not so sure that 40 years ago, educators were talking like that. 
I'm not so sure that self-esteem even figured in the early 70s. But the Rebbe said to him, build self-esteem. You want to be an educator? Build self-esteem. What did Mordechai do? Imagine the self-esteem that the children felt when they were gathered together. Who? The Rebbe himself is gathering the children. The Rebbe himself is coming in the middle of the night. And he's going to learn with you Mishnayis, the forerunner of the Mishnah. He's going to teach them about really simple stuff. Halachas of the Beis HaMikdash. Here's what we would be doing if the Beis HaMikdash was standing. This is the night of Pesach. Tomorrow is the Korban HaOmer. Here's the Korban HaOmer. Imagine the self-esteem. Imagine the way these children's imaginations and their souls were, were, were fired up by this. It's like unbelievable. Right? So this is who Mordechai was. And then those children, when they prayed to heaven, it was like an unbelievable davening. So Mordechai led them. And ultimately, since it's Mordechai who engenders this prayer, it's considered Mordechai's prayer. So he illuminated the eyes of the Jewish people through his prayers. And of course, this is the prayers of Mordechai and the prayers that he engendered that brought about the great salvation. We did tshuva. We didn't write and print or, or publicize books of great chidushi Torah. We didn't create a great academy, a great yeshiva overnight, but we daven with sincerity. And we, we, we poured our hearts up before Hashem. We were inspired by Mordechai. And because of this, the great geula, the great redemption, and, and, and the Yeshua, the salvation of Purim came our way. So that's why the Megillah introduces us Ben Yoyer, Ben Yoyer because of the nature that became a part of who he was. Mordechai was the most inspirational person. Just by his nature, he inspired prayer within everybody he met. That's what he, that's, that's what he did. He was an inspiration. You know, there was a, a very famous Sephardic tzaddik who lives in our times, called him Babasali, Rabbi Yisrael Abu Chatzira. And Rabbi Yisrael Abu Chatzira, the name Babasali is Arabic. It means praying father. There's a letter from the Rebbe to him where he asks the Rebbe what, where he should move, what he should do next in his life. And, and he says... In heaven, it is said that everything goes according to your word. 1952, he writes this to the Rebbe. And the Rebbe writes him back and uses the expression of a tzaddik that has not been seen for generations. So he was, what did Baba Sali teach? He was a rav in his youth. He did paskin halachas. He had ran a bezdin and dealt with people and issues. And then later on in his life, all he did was daven. He studied Torah, but mostly he was known as the daven. He was the holy daven, the holy pray, the, 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 pray, the praying father. He didn't call him a rabbi, he called him praying father. With reverence, with awe, greatest of tzaddikim, blessings, miracles, like unbelievable. So, so Mordechai, what, what kind of tzaddik was he? He was, was a praying tzaddik. That was his specialty, davening. There's a sikha from the Friedrich Rebbe where he says, Akavya ben the Mishnah begins in the beginning of the third chapter of Pirkeyav, says, Akavya, the son of Mahalal, says. So the Friedrich Rebbe said, the piyatef and a davener zokt. He said that the, the, the heel of a davener says, and he went on to explain the Mishnah in the terms of a heel. Now, a heel is, is uh, the deadest part of a person. The Gemara calls it the Malach Adam, the, the part of a person's body which is most devoid of life. And Mahalal comes to the word Hillel, or prayer. So people, people, there was people who mocked the Friedrich Rebbe, and the Rebbe writes this long letter, um, very vigorously defending and explaining the profundity of the Friedrich Rebbe's words in this five-page letter explaining to them how Akavya Bemahal Leimer is exactly what the Pshad is and how the people, his, the Friedrich Rebbe's detractors were basically so ignorant of so many things that they didn't understand <laughs> how he spoke in code and the profundity of what he, what he was sharing with them. So, so there could be this idea of that was Mordechai. Who was Mordechai? First thing is, Heir, he illuminated the eyes of the Jewish people through prayer. That's, the, that's why we say Ben Yor. Now we move on to say, 
Ben Shimi. What's the son of Shimi? Ben Sheshama El Tfilosei. He was the son whose prayers were listened to, the son whose prayers were heard. And finally, Ben Kish. What's the son of Kish? So the word Kish can also be understood as a permutation of the word Shehikish al Share Rachamim. He banged on the doors. He knocked on the doors of mercy. And those doors were open to him. Now there is this idea that Marsha says that when there's a gzera, when there's a decree which is leveled against the Jewish people, once the decree is signed and sealed, then there really is nothing to do. It's over. Like we know in Rosh Hashanah, there's a decree, what's going to happen that year, and we're all, of course, very contrite and very sincere, and we daven with great fervor, and we ask Hashem we should be sealed and signed for a year that's good and a year that's sweet and all these other things. And what happens if your inscription says otherwise? So conventional wisdom, wisdom says, that's tough luck, it's over, that's it, the program's been written, it's going to happen, whatever it says. And yet... Despite the fact that the Jewish people's fate had already been signed and sealed, despite the fact that the decree had already been released, Mordechai, through his prayers, was able to, so to speak, bang on the doors, proverbially speaking. And Mordechai and the people who he got to daven with him were able to, so to speak, bang the doors open. And they were open for him. So now we know why he's, he's named, all these people are named. Really, in other words, the Gemara seems to say, we just wanted to tell you he's from the tribe of Binyamin. And that's why we said Ishimini, because Ishimini is in the tribe of Benyamin. But if you wanted to say it's in the tribe of Benyamin, just say Ishhaya Bashushan Abira, Ushmoy Mardukai, Ishimini. What's Ben Yor bin Kish Ben Shimi? So the Gemara explained to us that Ben Yor bin Kish Ben Shimi is giving us Ben Shimi Ben Kish is giving us a profound insight into who Mardukai was. But ultimately, yes, it was for Yichas. It was to tell you that he was from the tribe of Benyamin. So the Gemara says, one second. If so. If so, then Kadile Yehudi. Then why do we call him Yehudi? I mean, because if the whole point is Ishimini, he was a Benjaminite, then he's a Benjaminite. He's not a Yehudite. Why do we call him Yehudi? Alma, from this we could see, Mayehuda Kasi. It seems they say Ish Yehudi that he's from Yehuda, from Shevet Yehuda. And then we say Kadile Yemini. At the end we say is the Ish Yemini. So what do you see from that? Alma bin Kasi. So which one was he? Was he descended from the tribe of Binyamin or descended from the tribe of Yehuda? Amar of Nachman of Nachman said, Mordechai Muchter Mordechai was crowned with beautiful names. That's how Rashi interprets it. Let's take a look at Rashi. Muchter Benimusay. Nimus, by the way, is Greek for names. He says, Beshemes Noim. Nimois shame belashen yavan. Nimois Nimus is the, 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 like in English nemesis, but English is Nimus is, is in Greek the name for a name. And Mordechai was crowned with beautiful names. So what what does this mean? This means that Mordechai was called Ishihudi, and Mordechai was called Ishimini. And what is the point of saying that? The point of saying that he was called Ishimini and Ishihudi is that. Mordechai was called these names because of who he was, how the beautiful person that he was, rather than the kind of lineage that he had. And the Gemara again continues and explains. Amar Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi. Oviv mi Binyamin. His father was a Benjaminite. Ve'imai mi Yehuda. And his mother was from Yehuda. So therefore, he actually traces his lineage back to both. 
and he is from the tribe of Yehuda, and he has qualities in the tribe of Yehuda, and he is from the tribe of Binyamin, and his qualities in the tribe of Binyamin, and he was Muhtab and Musi. He was Yeshihudi, he was Yeshimini, the Benjaminite, Yehudite. He had, he had beautiful things from all tribes. He was called with wonderful names, beautiful names. The Gemara now says, V'rabonon Omri, the Rabbanon seek to reconcile the seeming contradiction between Mordechai's background, whether he was Ish Yehudi or Ish Yemini, from Binyamin or from Yehuda, in a slightly different way. Mishpachais Mizgarais Zubazu. We had families who were, so to speak, uh, contending with one another. They were almost like fighting. Mishpacha Yehuda, Mishpachas Yehuda, the family of Yehuda, the tribe of Yehuda, Oimrim, Anogorim de Mishalad Mordechai. We are the cause of the emergence of Mardukai. It is our qualities. What do you mean it's your qualities? The second answer of the Gemara is not saying that he necessarily had a mother from Yehuda and a father from Binyamin. It's, not, it's a different answer. So how could you blame him? What do you mean? You caused him to be born? <laughs> he's from Binyamin. He's Ben Yoyer, Ben Shimi, Ben Kish, Ishimini. He's from Binyamin. What do you mean? How could you say you caused him? So the Gemara says, because the lake Tole David Lishimi Ben Geda. Shimi, David did not kill Shimi ben Geda. Umishpachas ben Yamin. So, so Shimi ben Geda was, the story is like this. David Melech was uh, con- challenged for the throne by his own son, whose name was Avshalom. And Avshalom came with an army. And eventually Avshalom occupied David Melech's capital city, Yerushalayim. And David Melech had to run for his life, surrounded by the few loyalists that he had. And as he was running, he came across a village, and in there was a man named Shimi, Shimi ben Geira, who was a descendant of Shaul HaMelech. He hated David HaMelech because his family, he was from David, from Shaul. So he began to throw rocks at David and his people. And he began to curse David HaMelech. And David HaMelech's soldier said, of Misa, he should be killed. And David said, leave him. If Hashem didn't want me to be cursed now, I wouldn't be cursed. What does it mean if Hashem didn't want? Shimi not responsible for his words? In the end, Shlomo HaMelech does carry out the punishment. He does punish Shimi for what he did, and he follows the law. But David HaMelech stayed the punishment for a very long time. What does it mean? What does it mean? He, he, if God didn't want him to curse me, he couldn't curse me. So the Alter Rebbe explains in Tanya that this is the attitude of a believing Jew. Something goes wrong. Somebody's done something wrong to you. You could do one of two things. You can say, blame that person. That, that horrible individual. Look what they did to me. And I spent my whole life angry at that person. But a person who has real moon and real faith says, who did this? Hashem decided this should be done to me. Does that person have to answer to Hashem why they chose to do a bad thing? Absolutely. And they did a bad thing. And they will be punished for it. But the Al-Hanizah whatever damage was going to come my way, it was going to come my way anyway. So come my way anyway, so what's the point of being angry at this person? That person ultimately, who was almost in a choreographed position. It doesn't exonerate that person from doing the wrong thing. The Rebetzin, whose yard site is next week. So the Rebetzin had a bleeding ulcer, which was misdiagnosed by a local Hasidic doctor. Very fine fellow, but a misdiagnosis. And, and um, she shouldn't have passed away. Like, was not, she was not terribly ill. She didn't suffer a major event. She went to the hospital with a bleeding ulcer. And because of the misdiagnosis, she was in the emergency room and she asked for a glass of water and she made a bracha, sat down, closed her eyes, never opened her eyes again. So, the Rebbe's doctor came 
Dr. Weiss came to the Leviah, it was very close to the Rebbe and the Rebbetzin. This is the story that I heard. I never heard it from Dr. Weiss, but the story I heard is that after that first night, I saw the Rebbe that first night. It was awful, awful. He asked the Rebbe if he could, if he could s spend some time with him, if he could speak to the Rebbe. So the Rebbe said with like a smile, if you leave your doctor bag downstairs. Because mm. he had his, so he left his bag downstairs and he went upstairs. The Rebbe had a little study there. And as soon as he walked into the Rebbe's study upstairs, he burst into tears, uncontrollable crying. And he said she shouldn't have died. We could have saved her. So it didn't, it's a disaster. It's, mal, it's a malpractice. Like, it's like, I mean, I mean, it's only made an honest mistake, but it's, it's awful. So the Rebbe began to comfort Dr. Weiss. And he said to him that when a person's time comes, nobody could change the destiny. He said the doctor made the mistake, the, this, the ambulance driver. If a person's time came, as long as you know you have to do your best. But then if a person's time comes, a person's time comes. And there's nothing you could do about it. My, my grandmother passed away in a fire. She was a you know, Holocaust survivor as a child, came here escaping the Nazis, and she was wheelchair-bound. And a fire broke out of the house. My grandfather ran out of the house, and then he, came, he realized my grandmother was inside, and he couldn't get back into the house. Mm. And, and what happens? This uh, fire station in Brooklyn was on a training exercise. The fire station was closed for the day. It took 21 minutes until the first fire truck came in New York. <laughs> that doesn't happen. In New York, there's a perpetual sound of sirens. 21 minutes. Mayor Bloomberg at the time came to the Shiva House because he was afraid my grandfather was going to sue the city. And he had every right to sue the city. And I saw my Zadie Oliver show it happened on Thursday afternoon. I flew in, of course, to New York Friday morning for the Leviah. And he looked so bad, my grandfather didn't recognize, I didn't recognize him. I, I, when I first saw his face, I, I didn't know his name. I couldn't recognize him. And he said to me the following. He said, when God was giving out jobs, he said that uh, the Malach HaMavis, the angel of death, didn't want to get his job. He said, everybody's going to hate me. Everybody's going to hate me. So God said, don't worry, nobody's going to hate you. They're going to blame the doctor. They're going to blame the fire department. They'll blame the police officers. <laughs> they're going to blame everybody else. And my daddy said to me, it was like chilling, like the words of the Rebbe said, Dr. Weiss. And he had never heard the story. I told him that story afterwards. He said to me, what are you doing? It doesn't mean the city is okay. It doesn't mean they should get, get off scot-free. But at the end of the day, what, what are you going to do? A person's time count, a person's time. You know, like I said, there's no, you can't get away, there's no wisdom. So this was David HaMelech in his lowest point. The king running from his palace, running from his capital city, pursued by his own son. His own son. And at this low point in David HaMelech's life, this shimmy comes out of the woodwork and he's throwing rocks at David. And he's cursing David HaMelech. What does a normal person do? You have soldiers, armed soldiers with you. And al-pi halacha, by virtue of Torah law, the person who says those things to the king is chayav misa. What does a normal person do? Off of his head. David HaMelech is such an unbelievable maimon. It's an incredible amuna. He says, I need to hear this now. I need to be put down now. I need to be further denigrated now. Clearly this is from an act of Hashem. But you could explain, like, why did this guy, why did he happen to go by this village? Why did he happen to see us? Why did he happen to have his opportunity? And David HaMelech lived with faith. Later on, Shlomo, Shlomo eventually gets told he should do what he has to do. And, and Shimi is punished. But the punishment is stayed. So what happened as a result? Because 
because Shimi wasn't punished, what did Shimi do? He got married. And he had children. And those children had children. And those children eventually produced Mordechai. Now this is not, it's not Mordechai, it's not just four generations. The truth is, if you look in the Targum Sheni, it goes through a whole bunch, of, I think it's 13 generations. But we just stop at some, some people, and Gemara explains why, because these people, it's, it's so, it says something about who, who, who he was. So the tribe of Yehuda, Yehuda would say, we are the ones who caused this. Why are we the ones who caused this? Because David HaMelech from Yehuda didn't kill Shemi ben Gedi. Mishmachas bin Yamin, Amr Mishmachav bin Yamin said, Minoi Ka'asi. This comes from us. Why? Well, obviously, because bin Yamin's family, he was a Benjaminite, his parents were from Yamin. Rava has a slightly different take on this. What is it telling you when it says Ishihudi and Ishimini? What is it telling you? Are we running late? Huh? Huh? Okay, we'll finish soon. So the Gemara says, Rava Amr Rava says, Knesset Yisrael Amra, Knesset Yisrael said, Le'idah Gisa, another way of looking at it, Ru'u Ma'asuli Yehudi. Look at Yehudi. It's David and Malcham made all these problems. Why? Because, why did Haman decide to bring about the genocide against the Jewish people? Because Mordechai refused to bow. That was, that was officially what made broke the, 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 the camel's back. So they said, if not for Mordechai, this whole thing would never have happened. Which is not really true, and it's the exact opposite of the previous interpretation where Shimi, they understood that if Shimi was cursed, David Amel said, it's all Milmaila. And of course, the real reason that happened was because the Jewish people sinned and because they went to a party they shouldn't have gone to and so on and so forth. But in their minds, they were saying, you see, it's all the Yehudi business. If only, if only he would have killed Shimi, there would be no Mordechai. Pretty rotten thing to say, but that, that's what they were saying. And then they said, And what we've been, what kind of payback we got from Yemini. Who is Yemini? So Yemini, what did Yehudi do to me? We're turning the page now. Yehudi did the lake of Tali, David, Lishimi. David didn't kill Shimi. Had David killed Shimi, there'll be no Mordechai. As Rashi says, according to Halach, it was Chayiv Misa. So Le'idah Gisa, Le'idah Gisa, the Gemara says, Le'tzaka, they were screaming, Le'lishvach, not as a praise, Ish Yehudi, he's Yehudi man, all the Yehudi made all the trouble, it's all David Amel's fault, Garmu Le'atzarazeh. And the other one said, they said, they said, they said, the Mikani Bey Haman, how's the guy who Haman was jealous of, and that's why he did this. Omash Shilom Le'yemini, what did they pay back from Yemini? That was the Le'katolah Sha'ul La'agag. Shaul was given a command by Shmuel Navi to go and wipe out Amalek. And he was supposed to kill everybody. What did he do? He left the king over. What happened? Because of that, Shmuel Navi came and he rebukes Shaul and he tells Shaul, your crown is going to be lost as a result of this. So what happened is Shmuel in the end kills Agag. Shmuel himself kills Agag. But that night in prison, Agag made sure to sleep with a maidservant and that maidservant became pregnant from him and that seed eventually led the birth of Haman. And that's why he was known as Haman Ha'agogi. He traced his lineage back to Agag, the king of Amalek. The Gemara further says, Rabbi Yechanan says, Really, he was a Benjaminite that he comes from Benjamin and so on and so forth. Why do we call him Yishihudi? Ah, that's a whole nother story. <laughs> that's because of how he behaved. It's not familial, it's not lineage, it's not background. This is because of the posture and because of the behavior. 
that Mordechai adopted. And to learn more about this, please come back next week. I knew he was going to do that. He get you on Okay, everybody, thank you for joining. You're